I know that most of you here watch TV, as I do occasionally. There's a cable channel that features a show called the 10 most fill in the blank. The 10 biggest this, the 10 smallest that, the 10 greatest, etc. And, and one particular show featured the greatest natural wonders of the world, and among them were the giant redwoods out in California. Of course, hundreds of feet in height, they're the, they're the tallest and close to the largest overall living organisms in this world of ours. Uh, they're also amongst the oldest of living organisms. And there's one tree in particular that they call the general. And it's thought to be over 3,000 years old. And now I've never been there to visit, uh, but I can, can just imagine what it must be like to stand next to a living organism that was here when not only Jesus walked this earth, but King David and the prophets as well. You know, to, to touch this piece of history, uh, one has to be awestruck and feel, standing next to it, very, very small. You know, they, they say the, the taller the building, the deeper the foundation is necessary. And we have to assume that the tremendous height of the redwood means that its root system goes equally as deep into the earth in order to, to balance the tree. But surprisingly, the roots of the redwood tree are very, very shallow. In fact, they're so shallow that uh, a single tree's roots cannot keep the tree standing. It doesn't provide balance. So what does keep them upright? It's the very fact that they grow together in groves and their roots are intertwined. So they support one another. You know, being locked together, the forces of nature cannot topple any one of them. And should a single redwood be left standing because of... Uh, the cutting of other redwood around it or the death of other trees, eventually that lone giant will fall down. They cannot stand on their own alone. And today, as we celebrate the feast of the body and blood of Jesus, you know, we might ask, what is it that or who is it that helps us to stand in the face of the forces of the culture or the forces of suffering that could knock us down? And on the one hand, we celebrate the Eucharist today. We gather around this table. And on the other hand, we celebrate what the Eucharist makes us become. And that is the body of Christ. Now, I've seen many things happen in my time as a priest that reinforce for me what it means to be the body of Christ in the interactions of people in the parish communities that I've been responsible for. This past week, another example of that in the funeral of Andy Fink. Just a tremendous outpouring of love and support in so many, many different ways. Um, 
to help his family get through some, well, you know, the toughest times that any of us could perhaps ever expect to, uh, to live the death of somebody who is a husband and a father. And this community, it, it, was, it was marvelous to watch. You know, the prayers that uh, came forth and still do, and uh, all the action and the presence at the funeral liturgy and the visitation and, uh, and the banquet uh, afterwards. And you know, that's the kind of stuff that, that proves that we know what it means to be the body of Christ. This feast that we celebrate today was, um, was born in the Middle Ages. And it was born in a time of infrequent communion. We, we really don't know about that so much today unless you lived prior to the Second Vatican Council. And th that period of time was a time of plague, a time of unrest. And people were, quite frankly, very, very much afraid of God. God was a judge. They felt that the plagues that were upon them or the, the wars that kept happening were because God was not so happy with them and was punishing them. And so the church actually has to come to a point where it tells the people that you must receive communion at least once a year, which meant, of course, you must go to confession at least once a year. Today we call that our Easter duty. And it's unfortunate that people would come to think of things in that way. You know, the, the, it, but it didn't mean that people were avoiding going to church. They still went to church. They just didn't go to communion. In fact, what then grows up out of this is adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. You know, the elevation of the body and blood after the consecration of each element that happens here at Mass was added during this period of time. You know, people wanted to see what it was that they worshipped. And then exposition and the use of the monstrance became very popular during this period of time. You know, our, who we are, our uniqueness as Catholics among the various Christian faiths rests in this sacrament. It's, it's, it's the be-all, it's the end-all. As the Second Vatican Council said, the Eucharist is the the source and the summit of our life as faithful people. Our life is to revolve around this, and, and if it does and we celebrate it well each week, then it, it makes us into something that Jesus calls us to be, his body, his blood, for others in this world. The Eucharist, the body, and the blood of Christ not only makes us Catholic, the Eucharist makes us what we want to become, this body of the Lord in the world. The fundamentalist or evangelical Christian churches, you know, they, they call themselves scripturally based. And I'm not saying this for their benefit, I'm saying this for ours here. You know, they would say if it's not in the scripture, it's not so. And I would challenge them to read all of the scriptures to find that who we are and what we are about as Catholic is very scriptural. You know, using the scriptures, most such churches teach that acknowledging Jesus as the one Lord and Savior is all that's necessary for salvation. But that's not anywhere in the scriptures. Nowhere to be found. 
And they will quote the scriptures when speaking with one of us as a challenge to a Catholic, a challenge to our beliefs, especially regarding our deep faith in the Eucharist. And what I would say to you when this happens is simply to quote from the gospel that we hear today, one that they stay as far away from as they can. You know, just like they might quote to us John 3.16, you might say John 6.53, and just leave it at that. Let them go and, and read it. As Catholics, we might want to repeat John 6.53 over and over again to ourselves as well. Where Jesus says, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. And when Jesus speaks of his body and blood, he's, he's not referring to just the physical parts of the human body. You know, the idea of the body and blood is that those elements contain the very being of the person. They contain the essence and when John's Gospel says that, that we should eat his body and drink his blood, John is not referring to something that is symbolic, but something very real. And John intentionally changes the verb eat from something socially acceptable to a verb that means the crunching sound made by diners when they eat their food. John's Gospel refers to the manna in the desert and compares Jesus' giving his body and blood as food and drink to the gift of manna that God gave the Israelites in the desert. And the Israelites began to refer to eating the manna as a way of saying that they were eating the law, eating the Torah, to, to become part of their very being, their very essence. To, to, to eat was to take on the essence or the life of God and God's law and what it offers. And Jesus is saying very clearly that, that now he is giving us himself and doing so in a very real way. My body is real food. My blood is real drink. You know, today we don't think like the Jews did. However, what Jesus is asking of us is the same. You know, we're to come together around his table, the altar, and to partake of his body. And like the redwoods, this meal binds us together. Those who prefer to go alone cannot stand. You know, it is our ongoing presence around the altar that binds us together. And taking part makes us into what we wish to be, the body of Christ. Intertwined, bound together, we stand together. Trying to do that alone just doesn't work. 
there is a growing devotion to the Blessed Sacrament. I, not just in our world, but I see that here in our parish community. Our bishops are calling for prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, before or in adoration. In particularly, asking for more vocations. And the main reason for that is because with no vocations, there is no Eucharist. Without priests, there is no Mass. With no Eucharist, there is no church. The body of Christ is cut down, and there is no way that we can stand together. Today reminds us of the hunger that we should have for the Lord in our lives. And it reminds us, too, of the unity that we need to survive. 